Father, we just thank you tonight for your blessing. We thank you for being with us, Lord, as we study the word of God. Now we pray that you will open our understanding. Lord, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to understand what you are saying to the church by way of these questions, by way of the word of God. Lord, clear the cobwebs out. Take the shadow, just chase the shadows of misunderstanding and confusion away. And Lord, give us soundness in our beliefs, in our understanding of the word of God. And thank you for it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell them it's going to be good tonight. Amen. Now, um, here's a question I got. What about dinosaurs, and when did they become extinct? Now, let me just tell you first off, as a kid, I loved dinosaurs. I mean, I was fascinated with dinosaurs. But I thought they came by way of evolution and all that good stuff. But I still was very fascinated with dinosaurs. I could name them. I could draw them. I had big dinosaur collection and all that good stuff. So um, when I got saved, I did wonder, what about the dinosaurs? What about them? How many of you ever wondered about the dinosaurs since you're a believer? Come on. Yeah. Uh, and, and when did they become extinct? And what happened to them? And, and you know, how does it all fit into the Bible? Well, let, let me answer that. And, and let me also say one thing before I do. I have discovered years ago, one of the reasons we lose young people when they go to college is things like this. They, they are not armed with information, Bible truth, about evolutionary issues, issues like the dinosaurs, evolution itself. They're not taught what the Bible has to say about it. When somebody is in church, we just think, well, we're going to teach them the Bible. Well, that's great. We, we should. And that's what I'm all about, and you know that. But see, there are little things that are working in the back of their heads that they're hearing at school. When they hear evolution, then they look at Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created, not evolution, but in the beginning, God created, not in the beginning, evolution evolved, but in the beginning, God created. So they hear evolution at school like it's truth, but it's still called the theory of evolution. But they're taught it like it's truth. And so they go, wait a minute, Genesis 1-1, because see, if you can't embrace Genesis 1-1, the rest of the Bible is irrelevant to you. Can I say that again? If you reject Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created what's up there and what's down here. If, if you are lost on that, the Bible's lost to you. Because everything flows out of that opening verse. In the beginning, God created. So I began to see, we're seeing these kids graduate high school and they go off to college. And then you hear in two years or so, they've walked away from the faith. They don't want to go to church anymore. They don't believe the Bible anymore. And now they're secular. And, and you go, how'd that happen? And so I used to think, well, we just didn't do a good job teaching them the Bible. But no, we didn't do a good job arming them to answer the skeptics. We didn't do a good job arming them with Bible answers to issues like this. And so we lose them. And you lose them for years and sometimes for life. So, and, and not only that, but there's adults 
who have these conflicts. Wait a minute, Genesis 1-1, but I'm taught evolution my whole life. What's the truth? Well, maybe the Bible isn't the word of God. Maybe the Bible should not be taken literally. Maybe it's a metaphor or an allegory or it's just something that we're to take as, you know, uh, neat little things to believe about life, but they're not literal like God created the heavens and the earth. You and I are not fearfully and wonderfully evolved. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, all right? And, and so that's why I, I believe in going into topics like this, uh, which you're not going to hear. I'm telling you, in most churches, you're not, and they should. I've told our youth pastors, uh, well, Jonathan and those that help him, uh, listen, if I were you, I would salt and pepper my messages up there with the kids with truths about evolution and creation. Because that thing is turning in their head, I guarantee you it's there, and they need answers. So, tonight, I believe the Bible does mention dinosaurs. Amen. Amen. Though it never uses the word dinosaur. Dinosaur is a relatively new word that was coined in 1841 by the famous British scientist Sir Richard Owen. So, the word dinosaur didn't even come around until the mid-1800s. Prior to this time, the word dragon was used to describe large reptilian creatures, not dinosaur, or giant lizard is what that means. Now, the Bible uses the Hebrew word tanin. Can we say tanin together? The Bible uses the Hebrew word tanin, which is translated a few different ways in our English Bibles, all right? The, English, or the Hebrew word tanin is translated into sea or river monster and sometimes into the word serpent. But it comes from the Hebrew word tanin. It's commonly translated dragon or dinosaur. Now, the tanin that the Bible talks about appears to have been some sort of giant reptile the Bible mentions 30 good times. Are you there? 30 good times. Now, these creatures are mentioned nearly 30 times in the Old Testament, and they were found both on land and in the water. So they were terrestrial and they were amphibious, suggesting that dinosaurs, are you ready, dwelt amongst men. Hello? Say, no way, Pastor Jeff. Oh, way. Yes, they did. I'm going to show you. In addition to mentioning these giant reptiles, the Bible describes a couple of creatures that gets real specific in such a way that some scholars believe the writers may have been describing dinosaurs. I think they're describing dinosaurs without a doubt. We find, for instance, in Job 40, if you want to read about a, what I believe was a dinosaur named Behemoth, Behemoth, you'll find about it in chapter 40 of Job, particularly verse 15, he's named which is said to be in Job, the mightiest of all God's creatures, a giant, now watch this, whose tail is likened to a cedar tree. Now that's the way Job describes him. Now let me ask you, was Job a human being? Job was looking at this thing. Job was looking at this creature. He says that the greatest of all of God's creatures and his tail alone is like a cedar tree. Now, I was in East Texas for seven years, 
And listen, if there's one thing that was on your property, it was cedar trees galore. When I first got there, I thought every tree was sacred. I didn't want to cut them down. By the time I was out of there, I had two chainsaws, and I cut down trees about every other day. But they were a lot of times cedar trees, and they got huge. Now, here's the deal. He's saying this creature, behemoth, had a tail like a cedar tree. Now, some scholars, probably skeptical scholars, have tried to identify the behemoth as either an elephant or a hippopotamus because, well, after all, they're the giant creatures of God. Uh, The elephant is gigantic. The hippopotamus is awesome. But see, elephants and hippopotamuses have very thin tails, thin tails. I mean, as a matter of fact, their tails are a disappointment once you look at their bodies. It's like, you got this little thin tail after this gigantic, massive body? But when you look at the dinosaurs, like Brachiosaurus, Diplodocus, how about our favorite Brontosaurus? The thunder lizard is what they're called. Thunder lizard. When they walked, it felt like the earth would quake. Now, I remember, I don't have it here, but I'm remembering from my child days when I studied these things. The Brontosaurus was 90 feet long. Brontosaurus. Brachiosaurus was even longer. And they were these gigantic things, but the thing about them is their tails could easily be described as cedar trees. Their tails. There's no other creature on earth now that you could look at and come up with this definition. No, the giant tails like cedar trees where they could swoop like this and they would wipe you off the face of the map in a microsecond with their tail. The brontosaurus, the diplodocus, the brachiosaurus, giant creatures. And that's likely what behemoth was. In Job also, there's another one, uh, there's a couple of other names for dinosaurs in the Bible, but um, there's just an example. Now, we need to go back in history. Throughout history, nearly every ancient civilization has some sort of art depicting giant reptilian creatures, not out of their imagination, but out of things they saw. Images carved into rock, artifacts, and even little clay figurines found in North America resemble modern depictions of dinosaurs. Okay? Now, rock carvings in South America, a couple more examples here. Rock carvings in South America depict men riding diplodocus-like creatures. And amazingly, they bear the familiar images of triceratops. Remember triceratops? That's another one I learned as a kid. Three horns sticking out. Giant, massive, armor-like body with a great big, looks like a shield around its head. Triceratops. They find carvings of these in rock, in artifacts that people of former civilizations saw. Uh, Then he, uh, pterodactyl, that's the flying dinosaurs. Tyrannosaurus rex called the king of dinosaurs. When Hollywood makes a movie about an awesome, terrible dinosaur, it's always T-Rex. There's even a rock band, isn't there? Don't go listen. I'm just telling you. T-Rex, Tyrannosaurus rex. That, That thing was bad. The one thing you didn't want to run into on a nice day was T-Rex because he would pick you up and have you like a cupcake. 
but they find depictions of these creatures in artwork that men saw before they were digging up the fossils and putting them together. Roman mosaics, Mayan pottery, Babylonian city walls, all testify to man's familiarity and fascination with these creatures. In addition to the substantial amount of historical evidences for the coexistence of dinosaurs and man, there are physical evidences like this one. The fossilized footprints of humans and dinosaurs found together at places in North America and West Central Asia. Hey, honey, did you take T-Rex for a walk yet today? No, there were smaller ones. And, and you would see men, male footprints or human footprints with dinosaur footprints walking. So if dinosaurs and human beings coexisted, Pastor Jeff, then what happened to the dinosaurs? Because didn't they suddenly disappear? Aren't we told by scientists that they suddenly disappeared, went away virtually overnight? The Bible doesn't address that issue. But it's very easy to ascertain that dinosaurs likely died out sometime after the flood due to a combination of environmental shifts because the environment radically shifted after the flood. You do know that. Before the flood, all vegetation was watered by a mist coming up from the ground. After the flood, we had rain. The environment greatly changed. And that's when man's lifespan began to plummet from living 800, 900 years to 70, 80, somewhere in there, it began to plummet after the flood because the environment so changed. And I believe that they were probably relentlessly hunted to extinction by man. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, but Jeff, now, are you telling me that they were on the ark? I am. You say, how are you going to get a brontosaurus on the ark? A baby. A baby. And and now, uh, when I want to spend more time on this, I can. I I can't take all night, but I can tell you that you can run the numbers and you can see, even with all the dinosaurs and the species, all you needed was two of a species. You didn't have to have all of the derivatives of a species. You only had to have two of a species. You know, two dogs, not two basset hounds, two poodles, two, um, you know, whatever. No, uh, German shepherds, you had, you had to have two of the species. That's it. And so with the dinosaurs, you could easily get everything on there and still have room left over on this giant ark. Let God be true and every man a liar. So that's my answer for the dinosaurs. Uh, I would love to see a dinosaur. The closest we've got, it would be a hippo or a crocodile um, there's a few things left that, that are very dinosaur-like, but I would love to see a T-Rex from a distance. I'd love to see one. Now I got this question. Are there really aliens? And if so, where is it in the Bible? Now, when we hear something like that, we tend to think, wow, you mean somebody really asked you that? Listen, in the last year, I have had people, I'm going to say this, Church people, I'm not saying they're here, but church people who are hallelujah, praise the Lord, love the Lord, read the Bible, who have said to me, said to me, to my face, 
Jeff, I believe there's aliens everywhere. They said, I believe, given any crowd of people, there's aliens amongst them. Yeah, I was told this. And, and I said, where'd you get that? And they began to tell me where they got that. Now, there's a lot out there. I don't know if you've caught this or not. But there's a huge focus on UFOs, on aliens, extraterrestrial life. Are there really aliens among us? Could there be aliens among us? All right, let's define aliens. An alien would have to be a physical being capable of making moral choices, having intellect, emotion, and a will. Wouldn't he? It'd have to be at least a being that has the ability to think, the ability to communicate, and to make choices, or you don't have an alien. You don't have a real alien. Now, again, I was really into science fiction when I was a kid. I I loved Invasion of the Body Snatchers. You remember that, where those pods and those, they would take over somebody's body and they would become an alien because they got into that pod thing and all of that. And I remember thinking, I was really wondering about my own parents every once in a while. <laughs> I mean, your mind can really go. Could there be aliens, which means life from another planet? Could there be life on another planet? And could it have ever gotten here? Don't you know that, for instance, uh, Scientology is based on that? Scientology is based on there there was an invasion of alien life to planet Earth centuries ago. And and the the whole thing, uh, what is L. Ron Hubbard's whole deal is from that. So there's all kinds of people in our culture who fully believe in the reality of aliens. So, I've told you before, my authority is the Word of God. If you're going to tell me something is true, I'm going to look at the Word of God. And if I don't see it in the Word of God, it's not true. You say, well, Jeff, come on, the Bible doesn't talk about aliens. Oh, I believe that it does indirectly. I believe that it does. So, could there be? Let me give you a couple of names. Tom Cruise believes this. I mean, it's well known he believes this. Uh, Other movie actors, uh, movie stars, believe this. Of course, based on other things they say, I have no doubt they also believe in aliens. Sometimes I'm convinced they're one, but we'll leave that alone. Isn't that true? Now, let me just give you first a few scientific facts. Then let me deal with this from the Word of God. Men have sent spacecraft nearly every planet in our solar system. After observing these planets, we've ruled out all but Mars and possibly a moon of Jupiter as being able to support life. Now, next thing I want you to note, in 1976, the United States sent two landers to Mars, two spacecraft that landed on Mars, Each had instruments that could dig into the Martian sand and analyze it for any sign of life. They found absolutely nothing, zip, zero, nada, zilch, nothing. Now, in contrast, if you analyze soil from, say, the Sahara Desert, which is just nothing but dead things because of the heat and no water, or you went to the frozen dirt in Antarctica, you would find either soil sample filled with microorganisms, which are living things. You would find 
any soil sample taken from anywhere on the earth filled with microorganisms, which, is, which shows us life. But they didn't get that from Mars. They didn't get it from anything they've ever visited by spacecraft. Now, in 1997, the USA sent Pathfinder to the surface of Mars. They took more samples, conducted many more experiments, and it also found absolutely no sign of life. Since that time, there's been several more missions to Mars uh, that have been launched, and the results have always been the same. No life, no microorganisms or anything else living in the soil, nothing. Now, astronomers are constantly finding new planets and distant solar systems, and some propose the existence of so many planets proves there must be life somewhere else in the universe, but the fact has never been proved, never been proved, There has never been found a life-supporting planet. Now, knowing that Earth alone supports life in our solar system, evolutionists really want to find another planet in another solar system to support the notion that life can evolve. But they never found it. None has ever been found. So what does the Bible say? Now we have science. Science has never found life, not of any kind, not even on good old red planet Mars. What does the Bible say? It teaches that the earth and mankind are unique in God's creation. Genesis 1 teaches that God created the earth before he even created the sun, moon, or the stars. Listen to Acts 17, 24. Here's what it tells us about the truth of creation. That the God who made the world and how much in it? Everything in it. Is the Lord of where? Heaven and where? Earth. And does not live in temples built by hands. Now look what it says about you and me, humankind, humanity. He made every nation of men. That means every ethnicity. He made every ethnicity of men. Why? That they should inhabit where? The whole where? Earth. Not and Mars and Jupiter and another solar system. But what did he make man for? To inhabit the whole, say it again, Earth. And he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. The boundaries where they should live and the times given to them. Do you know what right now? uh, uh, God has appointed time for you and your life. Time for you and me in our life. He has appointed a time that we're going to live on the earth. Individually and corporately, he's appointed a time. That's why the Bible says, help me to number my days that I might apply my heart to wisdom. Because every one of us, there's a calendar, there's an hourglass over every one of our lives. God knows when we're going to be born. He knows when we're going to go into eternity when our body is going to stop. And he has set those boundaries. So God paid very special and close attention to earth, earth and all its inhabitants. He made the other planets, but look, look at the focus on earth. He filled it with life, filled it with people, set their boundaries, said, said you're going to live here, you're going to live there, you're going to live this long and that long, and I'm in total charge of what goes on on earth and with the people that I have made. That's why I'm not uptight about global warming. Because, listen, the earth is not going to perish by global warming. 
No. And do you know that there was an article, a, a major headline in Time magazine, I think from the, ten, the 1980s, where we were being warned of global freezing? I mean, in two decades, they switched. Three decades, they switched. Three decades ago, you were going to freeze to death. Now you're going to burn to death. No, let me tell you what. We're all headed towards God. We're all headed towards the return of Christ. And when Christ returns, he's going to judge the earth. And that's what's going to bring an end to the world and history as we have known it. Not global warming. So chill, no pun intended. So the Bible gives us no reason to believe that there's life elsewhere in the universe, alien or otherwise. It gives us no reason to believe it. Now, I will agree with you that many, many strange and unexplainable things do take place that people attribute to aliens. One person that told me this thing about aliens, uh, we were in a restaurant, and I, and I looked around. I said, you mean you, you think some are in here? And they said, oh, I think it's very possible. And I said, would you know them if you saw them? He said, no, that's the whole thing. You don't know them because they're very well disguised. Let me tell you, I had a hard time swallowing my food. It, it was difficult because they really believed it. And, and that, you know, I'm not condemning it. They really believed They read some things that made them believe this. But I always go to my Bible. And so uh, I believe that things like aliens and, and uh, ghosts, phantoms, uh, haunted houses, unexplainable glowing lights and all these things we attribute to UFOs, I want to suggest to you they have a spiritual cause, a spiritual cause. Uh, and, and I believe they are demonic in origin. If you really are seeing an unexplainable light that is not from any earthly cause, remember what Paul said, Satan comes like an angel of what? Say it again, light. He comes like light. He's darkness, but he reveals himself as light. He likes to deceive us, and he deceives us by making us think that something bad is something good. He's a master at disguising evil. He makes evil look good, and good look like evil. He is constantly out to deceive us about the reality of things. And so I really believe that this whole alien thing and UFOs and all of that, I really believe it could be setting the stage for Antichrist, whose false prophet, it says in the book of Revelation, is going to do miraculous signs in the heavens. He's going to make things come down from the heavens and convince the world that he is being supernaturally used by God and bringing signs from God. And isn't it possible that our culture is being prepped and primed to believe in these things based on what we're being told about aliens and UFOs and all of that? It's setting the stage for us to swallow hook, line, and sinker the Antichrist and false prophet's deception. Satan's all about deception. His intent is always and evermore to lure people away from Jesus Christ by drawing their attention and their heart to something other than him. Aliens, UFOs, whatever. Another false religion, a false philosophy, a charismatic individual who's not really teaching Christ. You name it. He's going to make evil look good. So that's my answer about aliens. In a nutshell, there ain't none. Amen. But are there demons? Oh, you better believe it. You better believe it. 
Now, really switching gears here, I got another question. Why did Rachel, Jacob's wife, steal her father's pagan idols? She was already with Jacob and knew of his God. I wonder if this was part of the reason Rachel was barren for so long. Now, let me bring you up to speed with the story. Rachel was Jacob's wife. Now, um, you remember how Jacob and Esau were twins, and uh, Esau was supposed to be, was the firstborn, and was supposed to be the, receive the blessing of the firstborn. But Isaac's wife, Rebekah, didn't like Esau. She loved Jacob, but she did not love Esau, and she wanted Jacob to receive the blessing of the firstborn. So she hatched a scheme to deceive Isaac. And you remember how Genesis tells us that she told Jacob to go out and put on some animal fur on his arms and on his hands and and to put together a stew and bring the stew to uh, uh, Isaac, who had said to Esau, Esau, man, I just love the way you go and you you catch game and you you kill game, uh, you know, uh, things good to eat from the, the woods and the forest, and, and I want you to bring me some stew. Go out and kill something and bring me some stew. And Esau took off to do it. And in the meantime, here's Rachel uh, hatching this scheme to, because now, now Isaac is blind from old age, so he can't see whether it's Jacob or Esau. He's got to feel. So she says, now, now sweetie, uh, Jacob was smooth-skinned, and we're told that, that Esau was hairy. And I'm talking hairy. Now, I don't want to get gross or anything, but the Bible says he was so hairy that when Jacob went and put on animal skin, Isaac reached out and felt of it and said, that's my boy. Now, I'm talking, folks, that's hairy. That's like, don't go to the beach, hairy. That's bad. All right? Now, so he comes in. And, and Jacob and, and Isaac says, is that you, my son? Is that you, Esau? And Jacob lied through his teeth. And, and, and uh, uh, Rebecca is right there in the background prodding him on. And, and so he lies through, it's me, it's me, dad. And so uh, Isaac spoke over him the blessing of the firstborn, and he could not take it back. And when Esau came in and gave Isaac the stew, he said, what do you mean? I just had your stew. What's up with this? And Esau said, I've just now got home. And then they realized the game that had been played and the deception that, has been, that had been run on him. And, and so Rebekah told Jacob, you better get out of here. Go to my in-laws. Go to my brother and stay there until Esau cools off. Because Esau had said, I'm going to kill him because he stole my birthright. And so he went to Laban. His name was Laban. And that was his uncle, Uncle Laban. And when he got to Laban, he sees Laban's daughters. The first daughter he saw was beautiful, and her name was Rachel. And it says he immediately fell in love. It was love at first sight. He fell in love. And there was another daughter named Leah. Rachel was a looker. It says Leah had beautiful eyes. But it was Rachel who was the runway model. Amen? Now, he he wanted her for a, a wife. And so... Laban said, you can have her for a wife if you'll work for me for seven years. See, Laban, see, when you manipulate people, if you manipulate and deceive people, it's going to come back on you. It's going to come back on you. I want you to notice the astonishing ways it came back. Because here's Jacob, a manipulator. He was a trickster. He was a con artist until God pulled his hip out of joint and, and dealt with him strongly, and he became 
Israel. But until he became Israel, he was Jacob the trickster, the con artist, the fast talker, the smooth operator. And so the Bible says that Jacob worked for seven years so he could marry Rachel, and it seemed like nothing to him. Now let that be a lesson about love. Lust can't wait, but love will always wait. And, and seven years was like nothing to him. So the story goes, and this is, this is hard to believe too, and I don't know how to go here, but to go here. It's in the Bible. But the Bible says when the wedding night came, um, they had a big party, had the wedding, wedding feast. They, they must have drank. Because it says the next morning, Jacob wakes up and behold, it's Leah in the tent and not Rachel. Now, I don't know how you have a wedding night and you don't know who she is until the morning. You had some strong stuff somewhere along the way because he woke up and said, behold, it was Leah. And he goes out to Laban and says, what have you done to me? I didn't work for seven years for Leah. I worked for Rachel. And, and Laban, being the con artist, just like Jacob, said, oh, did I forget to tell you that our tradition is... You know, you give the firstborn first, and he goes into this rigmarole. And so now Jacob agrees to work seven more years to still get Rachel. So he gets 14 years of labor for two women. Then he hangs around a few more years, and God blesses him. And his, his, his uh, livestock, his cattle, and everything multiplies, and he's blessed. He has all kinds of children. And as a matter of fact, he is the father of the 12 tribes. Uh, from from Rachel and Leah and their handmaids came the twelve the heads of the twelve tribes of Israel. So in in the midst of all of man's uh, uh, deception and manipulation, Almighty God was checkmating the whole thing and bringing His will to pass right in the midst of the fleshiness of man. He was working all things together for His purpose, even though man was doing evil things. You can never get the jump on God. Amen? So the time, the time came when Jacob said, Laban's killing me. My, my, my uncle's killing me. He's taken my, my cattle. He, he's taken all my money. I've been working these 20 years or so for, for what? I don't have much to show for it except the, the livestock and whatnot, but I'm tired of being manipulated. So he decided to leave in the dead of night with, with Rachel and with Leah and all their children and all their livestock, they decide to get out of town. So I said all of that to bring us up to the question. When they decided to leave, the Bible says, while Laban was gone to cut the wool from his sheep, Rachel, knowing they were about to skip town and not tell him, went into his house and stole the false gods that belonged to her father. Now, these were idols. Idols. Now, why did she do that? They're about to leave town. She knows Jacob's God. I mean, Jacob was not, you know, he, he was not a super spiritual man at this point. But she knew all about his God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and who? Jacob. So she knew at least that much, why would she go in and steal her dad's idols right before they leave? Well, there's a couple of theories. One, she was an idolater, idol worshiper herself. 
Or second, she disapproved of her father Laban's idol worship and wanted to help prevent it as she was getting out of town and leaving him for good. Wanted to be sure old dad didn't die in idolatry. But I believe the next verses give us the best clue. Moreover, it says in verse 20 and 21, Jacob deceived Laban by not telling him he was running away. So he fled with all that he had, crossed the Euphrates River, and headed for the hill country of Gilead. He's going back to the promised land. He has decided, I'm going to face Esau. After 20 years of absence, I'm going to face him. If he kills me, he kills me. I can't take this anymore. You know, there comes a time where you just can't take it anymore. There comes a time where you've got to make a move. Now, with that in mind, Bible history reveals that one reason the idol worshipers of that time and that day kept household idols, because a bunch of them did, was they believed they could reveal secrets as well as future events. They would get these idols, and they would do some hocus-pocus over these idols, and they they would uh, expect and believe that the idol was going to show them something about the future. In other words, these idols were, were like we look at astrology today. Uh, they, they expected them to show them the future or to, to show them something they could not know on their own. So it's very possible that Rachel took the idolatrous images so that Laban could not use them to reveal where her and Jacob had gone. She believed that. Well, i got to get these idols out of here. Dad's going to rub their heads or whatever, and they're going to come out and tell him where we went. And so I'm going to take away any chance of us being found out. Now, I think that's a good possibility. Now, is this the reason for her barrenness? No. God chose to use the barrenness. Have you ever thought about it? All three of the patriarch's wives, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were all barren. And they all finally bore children by faith. Have you ever thought about that? Sarah, barren. Rebecca, barren just like Sarah. Rachel, barren. All three of them were vexed with barrenness. And finally, by faith, by a pure move of God, they, they had children. And I believe that that was God pointing to the ultimate miraculous conception where Jesus Christ would be supernaturally conceived and supernaturally born and without an earthly father. I believe that these are all types and shadows pointing to the big one. Amen? So that's my answer about Rachel. Oh, now we're coming to a big one. Everybody grab the sides of your chair and say, Jesus, help me. Now you need to put out a hand towards me and say, help him. Because here's, I got this question. What does the Bible say about sex before marriage? Is it truly wrong? Now I've told you, I got to go with the Bible. Not my feelings, you know, not my own opinions, or certainly not the culture. But what does the Bible say? So let me answer that question. The Bible teaches that any and all sex outside the boundaries of marriage is sin. That's what it says. This includes fornication. What's fornication? Sex between an unmarried heterosexual couple. What's fornication? Sex between an unmarried heterosexual couple. What's fornication? Sex between an unmarried heterosexual couple. Everybody say unmarried. unmarried. All right. And homosexuality which is sinful in all contexts. So the Bible teaches that any and all sex outside the boundaries of marriage is sin. Fornication or homosexuality or any other kind of sex. Okay? Now, 
I understand this is a touchy subject. Let me tell you why it's touchy. Because we are bombarded by the message of the culture. And, and the culture mocks what I'm telling you tonight. The culture mocks it. But have you ever noticed when you mock the word of God, it always ends up having been right, and it always ends up having the last laugh? Have you ever noticed that, that when you mock the, the Bible, when you mock God's truth, it comes back to bite you? So what I'm sharing tonight, I, I'm sharing out of love. Uh, but i got to tell the truth. I've got to teach the truth about this. So... Um, let's move on. The writer of Hebrews lays it out clearly for us. He says, quote, marriage, I'm quoting the Bible, marriage should be respected by how many people? Everyone. God will punish those who do sex sins. Now here is talking about sex outside of marriage because he just mentioned marriage. So he's not talking about adultery here. He's talking about sexual sin outside of marriage. So God will punish those who do sex sins, sex outside of marriage, and are not faithful in marriage. So the sex sins is about sex outside of marriage. The faithfulness in marriage is talking about adultery. It says, God, now watch this, God will punish those who involve themselves in sex sins. Now let me tell you what I've noticed in life. I have noticed that, that sin often brings its own judgment. Have you noticed that? If you reach back to the 1960s, for instance, let's go back to the 1960s. In the 1960s, right before the sexual revolution, and if you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with and all that foolishness, that, you know, um, whatever feels good, do it. And, And the whole sexual revolution went down. When that began, there were two STDs. Two. Two. Now... The last time I read, there were 33 to 34. Where did they come from? How'd that happen? Well, no doubt it happened by sexual sin. That's how they came about. Because, like I said, sins often have, they bring their own judgment. They often, God doesn't have to do anything. Your sin brings your own judgment, brings your own consequences. I have felt them. You have felt them. Uh, you know, if you test God, if you, if you tempt God, if you, if you decide to reject God's truth, then, then you, you reap consequences that bring their own judgment. Paul writes, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now, what he's doing here is he's saying, look, if you can't exercise self-control, marriage is the cure for sexual immorality. That's what he's saying. Marriage is the cure, and it's the only cure. Marriage or abstinence. Abstinence works every time. You're not going to get pregnant, and you're not going to get an STD if you're abstinent. Amen? Okay. I'm going to have to shout myself down on this one. Amen, Pastor Jeff. Amen. Preach it, brother. All right. Let's look more at what the Bible says about sex. Everybody say with me, God made sex. And he made it with boundaries and he made it with restrictions. Plain and simple. But he made it. That makes God pretty cool, right? Come on. God made it. Now, another verse to the Corinthians says this. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. In other words, when you die, all of that goes to dust. But the body, look at what he says, is not meant for sexual immorality, 
but it's meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Now, I have learned that when God restricts something, two things, he does it for your good, and second, it really helps if you can understand the meaning and the purpose behind the restriction. In other words, not just you can't do this, can't do that, can't do the other, you can't have fun in life, you might as well just be miserable and thump your Bible and when you die you go to heaven, but you have no fun on earth. That's not Christianity. Christianity is is freedom in the spirit. Freedom is not the ability to do what you want. It's the power to do what you should. That's freedom. Now, when I understand, God isn't just saying to me, don't have sexual intimacy with somebody before you're married. He's not just saying that to be a killjoy, but why? He says, because your body is meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Your body is his. You have been bought with a price, it says in the Bible. Therefore, glorify God in your what? Body. Glorify God in your body. You have been bought with a price. So if I look at my body this way, number one, I don't own it. It's not mine. I can do with my body what I want. Not if you're saved. Because if you're saved, it's not yours. Your body's not yours. Y'all are being so grim and quiet looking at me like, it's not yours, right? It's not yours. Whose is it? It's the Lord's. You have been bought with a price. What was the price? The blood of Christ. So since you were bought with a price, he says, glorify God in your body, which is also the temple of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So our bodies now, whereas the Old Testament, they had a temple, outer court, inner court, holy of holies, and the presence of God manifested in the holy of holies. But now that's done away with. So where is the presence of God manifesting? He's in you. The presence of God, you are the New Testament temple of the Holy Ghost. So the body's not meant for sexual sin, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Amen? Here's an even stronger verse. Flee. Everybody say flee. Now, listen to the language here that Paul is using. Flee from sexual sin. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you see that he's making here a distinction between sin and sexual sin and saying sexual sin brings a unique uh, penalty? It affects the body. It affects the body. So the sexually immoral person sins not just against God but against his body. The word flee here is to shun something or to flee to safety from something abhorrent, like a lion was coming after you. That's the way Paul viewed sex sin. He said, look, if you're in a situation where you're being tempted, you better, while you can, flee. Look for the nearest exit sign because, listen, God said, no temptation has taken you, but such is common to man. But God is what? Say it with me. God is faithful. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to endure, but will, with the temptation, provide an exit door. He will provide a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So there's a moment there where God is going to give you an out, an exit. 
and you take it. He says, flee like a lion is on your tail trying to eat you alive. Now, something that goes on a lot these days among professing Christians is living together without being married. I got to address this because I deal with it so much. I got to deal with it. Let me deal with it. Amen, Jeff, deal with it. All right, I will. I've had people look at me. Now, in my, I've been a pastor a long time. I've had people look at me and say, we live together because we love each other and feel complete peace about our arrangement. Hallelujah, kumbaya, praise the Lord. Their hands are raised in church and everything is great. But they're living together without being married. So the logic is this. Because we live together because we love each other, here's the logic. Here's what they're really saying to me. Love justifies sin. Isn't that what they're saying? We love each other, so we're living together, but it's not fornication because we love each other. So therefore, uh, love justifies sin. Isn't that what they're saying? Yes, that's what they're saying. I've also been told by unmarried Christians living together, we're married in the eyes of God. Who needs a piece of paper to prove it? I don't need a piece of paper. What's that old piece of paper? I don't need that piece of paper to prove it. We're married in the eyes of God. Here's the logic to that statement. Oh, I see. God himself has joined you together in a sort of God as the minister ceremony when nobody else was around. Oh, yeah, God saw our tremendous love, and so God came down and, and, and joined us together as husband and wife. We're married in the eyes of God. We don't need that piece of paper. Oh, boy. You know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, I didn't have to teach on this. I didn't have to teach on this. But you know what has happened? The culture has gotten in. The culture has invaded the church. And the losers are the church. Okay? So let me deal with those two, love justifies sin, or we're married in the eyes of God. Let me just deal with that. First, does love justify or absolve sin? No. The Bible would say no. First, true love Genuine godlike love will not involve itself in sin. Let me quote Paul when he's describing in his epic description of love in 1 Corinthians 13. Listen to what he says. Love is not happy with sin. Is that what it says? Or am I reading some weird version? No. Love is not happy with sin. Love is happy with the truth. So true love doesn't justify sin. True love shuns sin. True love will never make a truce with sin. So love doesn't justify sin. So when you say, well, we love each other, so we're intimate. No, no. If you love each other, boy, and I want to be, I want to say this in gentleness. I'm not being mean. I'm not pointing fingers. I'm not, listen, it's a battle. Is it not to walk in purity in this culture? I mean, to walk in purity in this culture is, is a major battle. Porn everywhere, everywhere. I mean, you can't hardly avoid. I mean, you can, but it takes work to avoid porn. It's everywhere. Pornography everywhere. So easy to get. Click, click, and you're there. Um, the whole attitude of the culture is hedonistic, selfish, self-centered, serve yourself, don't obey the Bible. That old church stuff is a bunch of 
crotchety old, old-fashioned, uh, you know, we no longer live in the first century. We're in the 21st century. And all this relabeling of sin, it's not sin. Don't even call anything sin. Uh, so, listen, I get it. It's a battle. But the only way to win is to walk in truth and, and know that if God calls us to something, God will grace us to walk in it, even though it's a struggle. Okay? So, love doesn't justify sin. Now, what about not needing a piece of paper, a marriage license? I don't need a piece of paper. I had somebody stand right in this altar and look me right in the eye. We don't need a piece of paper. And they got mad at me. Can you imagine being mad at me? They got mad at me. And they, and they left and never came back. Because I said, you've you got to get married. No, we're right in the eyes of God. Looked me right in the eye and told me that right here. I said, okay, first of all, let me answer it. Jesus always talked about marriage in relation to a legal contract. you know that? Because when he was talking about divorce, here's what he said. You have heard the law that says a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her what, everybody? A written notice of divorce. But I say that a man who divorces his wife unless she has been unfaithful causes her to commit adultery. Now watch. Notice how Jesus assumes That marriage is a legal transaction that requires a legal written notice of divorce to dissolve it. Right? I mean, if if it was just between you and God, why would Jesus say you need to get a legal written divorce notice? No. Because if it was between you and God, well, then then let God end it. But no, no. He said you got to get a written notice of divorce. And let's don't forget, his first miracle was performed at an official wedding ceremony. Now, I got a question for those who take the stand of, it's just a piece of paper, we don't need it. If it's just a piece of paper, why are you afraid of it? Why are you afraid of it? If it's just a piece of paper, oh, it's just a piece of paper. Then why are you afraid of doing it? Every time I've seen a couple living together out of wedlock, it's been one of two things. It's a relationship that went sexual early on, and they've decided to go ahead and live that way with no lifelong commitment at all, which I guarantee you, I guarantee you, the woman wishes that were different. Two, it's a situation where one of the pair thinks they are practically married, they're assuming, well, by common law, we're married, and we'll make it official one day, and that's usually the woman. She's thinking, oh, yeah, well, we got a common law situation here right now, but one day we're going to make it official because my man, he loves me. But the other partner, the man, is thinking, hey, there's not actually any commitment to marry. When I want to walk away, when the thrill is gone, then I'm no strings attached. I'm out of here. The woman wants it. The man wants the ability to flee, unencumbered. In a genuine marriage, commitment with the so-called piece of paper is just the beginning. It's the foundation on which everything else is built. A wedding makes the statement to God that we want to have his very best for us and the family to come. We want his blessing. And the Bible tells us that God's best for couples is one man and one woman together for life within the covenant of marriage. Listen to Moses. He said, therefore, a man, everybody say ish. Now that's the Hebrew for man, ish. Next time you get mad at your man, say you ish. No, therefore a a man, ish, 
shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, which is Ishaw. Ishaw. Hey, Ishaw, come here. What do you want, Ish? All right, now. Watch this now. They shall become one flesh. Notice how Moses is gender specific. Can I point that out? He's gender specific. He says, here's what God did when he made marriage. Therefore, an ish, a man, a male, shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his woman, wife, isha, female. And they, male and female, shall become one flesh. That's why this whole thing of two males, two females marrying is totally against God's original plan. It just is. I'm just reading the Bible. Or it would have said otherwise. When people of the same gender marry, to me, that's making a mockery of what God created. A man, Ish, shall be joined to Isha, a female. And those two, male and female, become one flesh. Jesus said the same thing. Haven't you read the scriptures, he said? They record that from the beginning God made them male and female. And he said, that explains why a man, Ish, leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, Ishaw, and the two are united into one, since they are no longer two but one. And we know that when he said join together, he mentions, uh, we remember him mentioning a legal ceremony. He was talking about a legal ceremony based on his attending a wedding for his first miracle and what he said about divorce. Jesus knew of no other arrangement nor does God. Boy, it's just, you know, you could drop a pin on a shag carpet and hear it in this place. I'm done tonight. Let's stand up together, can we? Boy, I'll tell you, that rain almost kept me from church tonight. I'm kind of thinking I might should have. No, folks, listen, God wants our good. He wants what's best for us every time. And when you do it God's way, though it's a struggle, a battle, though it's not easy, when you let the Holy Spirit help you to do it His way, His blessing and favor will be on you. And I don't know about you, but I, you know, and I'm a very flawed man, full of mistakes, shortcomings. I have faults, lots of them. But I want to please God in my walk because I want his favor and I want his blessing and I want his smile let's lift our hands to him Jesus thank you for your word tonight and and Lord we just thank you for the truth of God even though it stings even though it hurts even though it's difficult yet Lord you will empower us and even when we fail you will forgive us and pick us up again, brush us off and give us a new day and a new horizon. Thank you, Lord, for the mercies of God that are new every morning. And Lord, we just cast ourselves upon you and we thank you for helping us, Lord, to walk in your truth in Jesus' name.